Hello and welcome to another episode of Behave Yourself. Uh, this is your host, Donald Connolly, and uh, I am joined in the studio by the one and only Mr. Bruce Regal. Hello, Bruce. How are you? I'm well, Donald. How are you? I am excellent. I am excellent. Um, Bruce has been on before, uh, but I thought this time it uh, it warrants his own uh, his own episode because Bruce has had a storied and varied career. Um, we'd like, uh, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit, but also then explore some of the, the behavioral science that has uh, popped up throughout the career, and then now more recently, um, the application of it to, uh, I suppose, the financial sector in in general. So, sure. to give a bit of background, do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I can do that. I mean, I, I do find Donald strange here being without Rob. You know, this is true. Listening to his music. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, so huge oh. shout out for Mr. Rob Snashel. Yeah, absolutely. I hope he's listening tonight. Oh, he is. He he's is. He's always listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Bruce, um, I can tell you. So, BCom, the University of Alberta. Yeah. Um, do you want to take us from there? Where First of all, the decision after that, where to go. What okay. was your, your mindset? And Okay, well, sure. So I did a, you know, I, I lived in Edmonton yep. until, and then I did this degree at the University of Alberta, which was a very good degree. And I thought about going to law school, thought about going to business school, and then took some, did some work experience for a couple of years. And then thought, once I started the work experience, I thought, you know, I don't want to go to law school because that's too advisory in nature. And I wanted to really go into business because I thought that's where the action was, you know, really doing stuff. So, and in those days, you know, this is decades ago, right? There was no internet. Decades, just. Imagine, you know, <laughs> we, we did have color TV. Just about, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Just color TV, but, but computers and things like that were pretty new. And so it was hard to get information. And I had a friend who, a friend, I had a professor who, at the business school, who had gone to the University of Chicago at, to get his PhD. Yeah. And he said, oh, you got to go to the University of Chicago. So... I applied to a bunch of schools to do a business degree, got into University of Chicago and Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. And this is where, you know, I think that we'll get into it maybe a little later on, but the whole mind is flat. Oh, uh, that is a huge uh, section coming up yeah, later. Okay, yeah. Good, good. But uh, so I had never been to Chicago. Yeah. And I'd never been to Philadelphia where the where Wharton is. So I... After I got accepted, and just before, so before this, you were saying you did work experience. What was the? I work? worked for a utility company in Canada that did uh, that did provided gas and electricity, basically. Okay, to okay. Everybody in Alberta and British Columbia. Cool. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that was a, it. Was an interesting job, but it was kind of local. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm glad I left that. Although it was fun while while I was there, and so I I did this trip to Philadelphia. Like I literally flew to, I can't, I think I flew to Philly first, spent a day and a half there, then flew to Chicago and spent a day and a half there and then flew home. So that was it. And in those days, that was like a lot of money to just to check them out, just to check them out. And I got to Philly and I stayed in a residence and nobody talked to me and the weather was shitty. And I went and looked at the business school and then I went to the University of Chicago, and it was sunny. And like people talked to me, 
And so therefore I decided to go to Chicago. That's amazing. So in this huge decision of your yeah. life, the weather, the yeah. social quick conversations here and there. Yeah. Yeah, I met, I met a math student at Chicago who said, you know, what you're doing here? And I said, well, I'm here looking at business at the business school. And he says, oh, well, all the business school students hang out at the Ida Noise pub on a Tuesday night or whatever night it was. You should go there. So I went there and, you know, talked to people and had a great evening. And nice, I could do this. Evening, yeah, yeah. I was convinced that that was the place to go. So wow, that's totally biased data and meeting one person. Yeah, serendipity at its most yeah. Uh, yeah. impactful. So then you did, what was the course then you started then in Chicago? It was an MBA. An MBA in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. It, that's the booth. It's booth. now called the now booth, booth right business, now. which I can... Nice. We can talk about behavior. We will. Right? We will get to that. So that's booth. So that's yeah. So I wanted to just get a little bit of the chronology of it all, because um, you've gone from some really interesting posts, um, and I've I sort of look even going through sort of the CV. You were in New York for a while with that was uh, Oliver Wyman. Yeah. And that's it. Was that just general sort of strategy consulting? It's or Oliver what? Wyman and Cup. They're a strategy consultants, but they most almost totally deal with the financial services sector. So. Yeah. Banks, insurance companies, etc. And that was straight from is it was that was straight from MBA. straight from MBA. Yeah, excellent. So you were in New York then for a while working for there for two years. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you made, you made a big move then, and it was in nineteen ninety one. Yes, because the job at Oliver Wyman wasn't going that great. I wasn't really enjoying it, and yeah, I wasn't really succeeding. And I don't think they would have let me stay. In fact, yeah, uh, the consulting stuff was too kind of. You know, we could talk about that when we get to behavioral sciences too, but it's kind of like you spend a lot of time trying to sell projects, then you sell them to people, and then you do a lot of work, and you make a lot of it up as you go along, and then when you sold it, they don't do it or do do what you advised based on, you know, internal politics and stuff. Yeah. It wasn't like doing, you know, I know you've... Yeah, yeah, you want to be in... You've had some real, you know, you've had some real jobs, right? Where yeah, you yeah. make stuff and sell stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which you've told me about before. And that, you know, that, that's that's not what consulting's like. So, but the other reason is because my then girlfriend, Lisa, who you've met... Uh, Shout out to Lisa, now wife Lisa. Now wife Lisa, mother of my children. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lisa had, a, had studied... Uh, law at Oxford Wow! even though she was also Canadian like me so she had a job off so in 1991 you know I had a job that was going nowhere in New York she had no job offers in New York she had a job offer in London I had a British passport which is a longer story because I was actually born in Britain so we thought let's go to Brit let's go to London and see what happens so nice I went and sort of pounded the pavement nice knocked on a few job. doors yeah yeah so that was that was that was tough actually, but it was great. Yeah, and where did you ended up? Ended up uh, at an investment bank, a British merchant bank, basically called basically called S. G. Warburg. S. G. Yeah, yeah. Which now is part of UBS and no longer exists as a standalone organization. And that was quite interesting because I went in. I I must have had after having lots of job interviews at Deutsche, when, when I graduated from business school, I had lots of job interviews because like Warwick Business School, you know, all the- They queue up a little bit for They queue up, but on, they only queue up when you're graduating, right? There's uh, no, so, it's like, that's the only time. Yeah, so they yeah. were all there. Uh, I'd done well at, you know, I'd done academically well, so I was on the list and stuff. 
But when I got to London, it was like, who are you? Yeah. We don't know what an MBA is in London. And why do you have a funny foreign accent? And how come you're 28 years old and haven't had 10 years of work experience? Or, you know, yeah. the usual, very different UK market. So it was tough. But I went into Warburg's and the guy who interviewed me was a mathematician who said, uh, we, we need somebody to, we need to build a model, convertible bond model to value convertible bond. Now, convert, I don't know if our listeners know what a convertible bond Talk is. Talk us through, uh, what is a convertible bond, uh, please, okay, Bruce? So, so For those that don't know, which is few, I'm sure. I'm sure everybody our, knows. Our yeah, yeah, hugely no. intelligent listenership. So, the, right, to f- companies fund themselves in two ways. One is equity and the other is bonds. So they either sell shares to investors or they sell bonds to people who lend money to the company. A convertible bond is kind of a hybrid between the two. So it's a bond, it pays interest, it has a maturity date, but at some point during its life, the holder, the investor, can turn the bond into equity. So it's a hybrid instrument in the sense that it's got aspects of equity and aspects of of bonds and as a result it also has aspects of options which which are derivatives that have a you know an option has value just because it's an option right just because you don't have to exercise it so it's quite a complex thing to value and in the uk market people were valuing them basically on heuristics what we you know fly by the seat of your pants kind of so yeah the premium needs to be 10 percent and the coupon should be five kind of thing yeah that's true for all companies whereas uh option pricing theory which we learned at chicago uh and the black shoals model other option methods are much more precise ways of valuing things and i'd been taught some of that stuff at chicago and so when this guy Mike asked me, "Can you build the model?" I I was smart enough yes, to know sir. that the correct answer was <laughs> yeah. yes, sir. Right. So so I answered yes, and then once I got in, I figured out how to do it, which was to hire a much smarter person than me, a young guy named Graham Francis, who was doing a PhD at Oxford University in physics, or sorry, not even. Uh, I think he was in astronomy or something wow something but he was there. just he was he was smart yeah exactly he was smart so i basically bought the book the option theory book asked him to read it told him what a convertible bond was and then the two of us figured out how to build the model wow. he did most of the work and it was an excel spreadsheet wow it was just a, a sort of an algorithm for you input prices one side yeah or whatever you want to input the other side and outcomes on the other side how you should price you these. input price, the debt spread of the company issuing, the volatility of the stock, because that's really important, yeah. and on options, for those our listeners know anything about options, volatility is good for options, Yes. and uh, then you get a price at the other end, so yeah, that's what we did. Wow. And, and this is to replace then the heuristics and yeah. then the, amazing. So, so then we used it to convince issuers to issue the bonds, and we priced things correctly. This is a this is a moneyball story basically. Yeah. This is right. a yeah. this is a scrappy Billy Bean. Yeah. Bruce Regal steps into Now j- just for comparison purposes when we valued these bonds we were right within sort of 2 or 3%. Now that's not good enough that it no, has to be I mean, okay. It's like tiny and the people who work on these models are all nuclear scientists. Okay. But at the time so this was new and was this new for all of London? 
And was this new f- in it general? Was, or it, ha- was, it, it had been done in the States. Yeah. But it hadn't really been done in London or Europe at all. And, wow. the, and the instrument was different. The, the When you could convert, and some of the parameters were different to the UK market than the US. So we couldn't just take. It's not the a US copy and paste. Market. No. That's amazing. So then it was a real sort of you, you got your hands really dirty yeah. coming up with a new instrument that was useful. And then what was the metric you used to, to quantify how successful it was compared to the old sort of heuristic model? Well, you, I mean, you could trade based on it. So there's, you've heard of arbitrage, well, it comes up. Arbitrage, big, yeah, uh, yeah. Arbitrage, arbitraging a market. So what you could do is you could replicate the convertible bond by buying shares and options and dynamically moving around how many shares you owned. So if the thing was priced incorrectly, you could make an arbitrage profit without risk. So you could buy the convertible bond, short corporate bonds and short equity against it and make a profit for no risk. No risk. So, So it was important. You needed the model A to figure out how you set up that arbitrage, but B, you needed the model to make sure that the bond that you issued wasn't arbitrageable. Yeah. Wow. So. Exciting, yeah. exciting time though to to feel that you've kind of got an ace in the hole where no one else has. No one else has it and everyone yeah. else is using an outdated model. Yeah. yeah. And presumably that's highly kind of almost top secret. You don't tell me. It sort of becomes evident in the way yeah. in which your trading that's happens. True. Yeah. But for a while, you feel like you're going into the casino knowing the... Yeah, I mean, I was on the issuing... I was on the corporate finance side, not the sales and trading side. So I wasn't really trading. Yeah. I should have gone out and traded based on it and, you know, made but my fortune. part of the, the bank or part of the company you were with took did what trade. you did. Yeah, yes, yeah. did trade with it. Wow, amazing. So then yeah. there's a, one more move that I... Well, two more, actually. So the, the last uh, move within that, I suppose, career... Talk me through, there was a bit of, when you moved then to, so Deutsche Bank is kind of where you ended up yeah. ultimately. Uh, so, I mean, that was interesting because I was sort of working away, doing my job, enjoying what I was doing, not getting paid very much, but getting paid, you know, yeah. plenty and slowly paying down my student loans and stuff. And then the two heads of our division, equity, was the convertible bond group that I was in had become part of equity capital markets which is sort of the new issuance side of of equities and corporate finance, so IPOs. And yeah, corporate. yeah, yeah. Uh, the two bosses quit and went to Deutsche Bank because they were concerned about Warbriggs' future. And so I went through this whole heart-wrenching sort of week of trying to figure out what I should do. Should I stay or should I should go? I or? St- yeah, and that's what I, I mean, we were talking earlier about this, but, you know, I spent a lot of time wondering whether Deutsche Bank was a better bank than Warburg's when in fact the correct decision was did I want to stay with the team or not because I I strongly think that you know who you work for is more yeah who the team is you're working with is more important than than the, the actual yeah. and so when when you were saying that the two senior guys left and they wanted to take the whole team with them well they are they they're you know it's a long time now so I don't think I could get in trouble yeah, they're yeah. Not a, you can't take the whole team right but you can make an enticing offer where or i mean interestingly i got an offer from a deutsche bank the day after they left yeah yeah oh bruce no connection yeah yeah we'd like to talk to you about coming to join this team and i and that was 
And I, first I was flattered. I thought, oh, I didn't know those guys liked me so much. Yeah. And then I went and interviewed, and Deutsche Bank was not as good a bank as Warburg's at that time. And it was a really hard decision. But then I decided that it was better to go with the team. Wow, good people, decision in yeah, there. Yeah, no, it turned out. And then I stayed with that same group. And really the, the guy, the boss, Michael, of that group, one of the two bosses, I kept working for him from... Well, I started working for him in 1993. Then he went to we both went to Deutsche Bank in 1995, and I worked for him pretty well continuously till 2010. Wow! So 15 years, yeah. Wow. That's amazing when you get to build up that level of kind of trust and knowledge of yeah. how they work and. Yeah. It's almost like a like I suppose my only comparison is 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 in a in a sort of a soccer or rugby or sports yeah. scenario when you get to know how they play and you can just feel comfortable yeah. and it's and it's, it's interesting right I remember and he used to say he he used to say this a lot you don't have to be like best friends or be buddies after work buddies and beers and stuff yeah or even think you just have to be complimentary and know how the other person works yeah and respect them and trust them you know and work with them and and did our, know that if you pass the ball that they're going to yeah, yeah. you know where they're going to be they don't you don't have to you know you don't have to be godfather to their children yeah, yeah. but did our genius was it quite a Graham Francis did he make the move as well was he he that's interesting uh, very perceptive questions yeah he did not and he stuck it out with SG Warwick he stuck Warburg. it out with SG Warwick we tried many times to get him to join and he didn't and he went on and had a very successful career at Warbricks. But, you know, he was smart. Maybe that's the difference between him and me. I mean, he... Because no matter he where was, he ended up, he would... Because he was a... PA, because he had a... He had a particular... He was a lovely guy, great marketing guy. And he also had a... You know, this deep knowledge that was deeper than mine of the actual theory. Because he had a very mathematical PhD background. Yeah. Uh, so I think he was going to succeed regardless. But uh, no, he didn't join. He, we're still fr- he and I are still friends. He lives in Singapore. Wow. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing when you hear about these things in retrospect. Because I think, uh, I can't remember whose quote, I think it may be Steve Jobs, I'm sure that'll be wrong. But it's when you look back, things all makes life makes sense in the rear view mirror. But then when you kind of look at it at the time, and I suppose for me as well, when there's decisions ahead of you and you don't know which way to go and you don't know what that branch will lead to, yeah. looking back from where you are now and saying, oh, yeah, going from here to here to here, it all sort of begins yeah. to make sense. Um, but it's nice to see when you look back and see someone who, say, was faced with the same decision and you kind of get a little bit of a counterfactual. And you That's get to true. Because, yeah, he did a different decision and went a yeah. different way, but still is happy and has a nice family. and yeah. Things worked out, yeah. So you probably you you're a modest man. So you're I'm gonna have to blow the trumpet. So you rose through the ranks in Deutsche Bank. Um, so I know the the final type was the COO of Global Banking Division. Yes. So can you talk to a, a little bit of so what first of what is the Global Banking Division? Okay. Oh, we'll start with that. So the Global Banking Division was corporate finance. So that's all the private side of investment banking. So, so mergers and acquisitions, capital market raising, the, the group of people who cover and provide services to companies, mm. issuing companies, as opposed to the group of people who would sell or trade or invest. On the public side of that's stock right. markets and things like that. 
So it was the corporate finance side. Yeah. And it also included commercial banking, so cash management, trade finance, trust and you know, the the serve the other services. The, the, that's the sort that of the day to day day to day banking. Yeah. Provided to companies again, so it was yeah. the company side, the private side, so the side that you know the public doesn't know about that where you're dealing with companies for their day to day needs. Yeah. Uh, so it was one. It was like eight thousand people. Wow! In the end, probably in the division. In the division, wow! We were in thirty-three different countries. You know, it was a pretty complex. Wow! And so, business. next question then: what What is the day-to-day, or what is the role of the so the COO of such well, a large kind of division within a massive global bank? I mean, COO. It's COO is sort of a. It de- it depends on the company almost. You can't yeah. say this is what. It, I mean, the the tradition in a traditional company. So let's say, you know. Uh, I don't, even, I don't even want to tip, choose a choice because I'll get it wrong. But, but I, I can almost imagine in a sort of, let's say in a manufacturing company, yeah. a COO will the the day-to-day running of, let's say, Correct. all the, the, the factory the floor, the machinery, Correct. what the company's known for doing. That's right. It's in charge, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, the operations of the company, exactly. the machinery. I think that's exactly right. But in a in an investment bank, the machinery are the people, right? The, yeah. The, so... And also, there were other divi- There were there were support divisions. So, th- there there was a technology division that provided techno- the computer services for our division. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah. There was a yeah. HR division that provided the HR for our division. There was a legal, accounting, all com- compliance. All these other groups that were not within the division, who were the sort of the support slash ancillary yeah, services, ancillary kind of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Governance services. So, but my role was kind of, if you think about the the way that, that an investment bank or any services company works, the senior guys are the guys who uh, go out and sell to customers or do the deals. So my boss, Michael, was the same guy I left with. Yeah. He was the head of corporate finance and he was the, C, he his job was to be on the, he wasn't the coach or the manager, he was a player, right? So his job was to be the senior banker in the division. So if there was an M and A deal to do or a big pri- issue, he would go. Star striker, make the make it happen. He'd be pulled in to go do the deal with the with the team. So my job was really to stay home and manage the division. So the people had to be managed. Yeah, so it was really a people management. Okay, role. so it was very much a management role rather yeah. than a sort of a. It, it could have been any industry, but it was also just a just a management. Very much so. That's right. So I moved from, and that's well, that was quite a move. To, then it, that's what interests me about behavioral sciences, right? Because I went from being a product kind of expert on yeah. markets and convertible bonds, etc., to being so finance being my expertise, to being people management being my expertise. You know, having to try to make the division profitable and how many people should we hire and how many people should we fire and how should we be organized and how do we motivate people and what training do they need and and you know what's the legal requirements and stuff like that you know that was and it was it's very much a kind of coordination role because I wasn't responsible for HR or legal but I had to sort of work with them and the bankers to make things work. Yeah. Basically. So you were a little bit like there was all these uh, ancillary services that kind of had to happen, but you 
where like the manager you were putting them in the right place making sure they yeah. talked to each other yeah. making sure it all ran smoothly yeah wow fascinating so you were doing that then for, for how long then I did that from 2001 to 2010 and but what was most important is that my boss was very successful during that time so that, although it was the same job it expanded because he we got more and more businesses were put into that's that's why it changed from the name corporate finance to global banking was because other business he Just, was seen yeah. as a good manager so other businesses were put into our kind of basket fantastic it sounds yeah. like then when you arrived little did you know it at the time when you arrived 91 92 into Warburg you landed completely on your feet to find this guy Michael yeah yeah and well, stay and y- yeah and you know that if for all our listeners who are interested in you know career, career advice yeah it's really important, you know. I I actually had a really terrible boss for the first couple of years. when I first got to Warbricks, I had this guy Michael, who was Michael Williamson, who was the convertible guy. He was great, but then I had to report to another guy who I didn't like, whose name I'm not going to mention. And like I thought, maybe I should quit. Maybe I should move back to Canada. You know, yeah. all these terrible thoughts. And then I kind of realized, or why don't you go and find someone who you want to work for? And so go make your own luck kind of thing. Yeah. I found this guy, you know. Now, I was lucky he took me on, but I kind of went to him and, and I didn't bitch and complain. I didn't say, hire me because I don't like this guy. Please save me. I said, I'll hire do me this because more. I can help you and you building your business. And So it was a sort of a sideways move. Yeah. But wow. it was a sideways move to work for someone I really liked. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good lesson there in itself, just to just to be open to different ways of getting what you want. Yeah. It doesn't always require you to rip the rule book up and move everything. Yeah. Um, wow, that but is... I was close. I mean, I almost quit. I mean, I almost quit to yeah. say, take this job and shove it. <laughs> yeah. But no, it was smart to stay and figure out the figure it out. Wow, it's a yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating career plan. So that really brings us to where the whole thing gets very interesting from uh, so this is where our sort of paths connect. After um, Deutsche Bank. Yeah. You so then you left Deutsche Bank to do you were consulting privately yeah. for a little while. Well, I saw, so there was a bit that the story is slightly more complex if if, if Yeah, well let's yeah, yeah, with but the so my boss and this is another lesson about what happens in big firms. My boss retired in 2010 and our division got amalgamated with another division Uh, and so I went from being chief operating officer of one of the two divisions to being deputy chief operating officer of the bigger division yeah but the chief operating I mean not surprisingly the new chief operating officer of the bigger division was the other guy's chief operating officer who'd stayed, not the guy who'd left. So I was never considered for the overall job, mm. maybe because I wasn't the right guy for doing it, but also because my guy didn't win, right? He didn't stay, he left. So uh, I spent a year sort of helping integrate the two divisions. But then after that, there wasn't really, the, the job had kind of gone away. I didn't want to be you know, the bag carrier's bag carrier. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So, even though I liked him a lot, the guy, uh, so then I took a sabbatical and quit and, went, and sort of took a year off and 
helped out at the University of Chicago in London and did some traveling and things. And then I decided to go back and went back. And, and by then I decided what I'm really interested in is HR. And, or what I'm really interested in is in people management and motivation. And surely the best division to go work for there is HR. And uh, so I asked one of the board members who I knew if I could be head of HR, even though I had no experience in HR. <laughs> and I wrote him a letter. I still think I still have the letter. I would like to be head R, please. Yeah. Uh, just give me that. Yes. <laughs> head of HR. So I didn't get that job, partly because I had no experience. That's fair. Partly because they gave it to a woman, and I think they wanted to give it to a woman. But with all due respect to that woman, I think she was a great candidate, so that's fine. And then they said to me, but we have another job. Why don't you be the chief operating officer of HR? So you, you, you want to be Similar to the, the, yeah. Yeah, but it turned out it what that's what you, it sounds similar, but it wasn't similar. Because the, the, the CEO of the HR isn't the same sort of star quarterback going off and making all the plays. Correct. That's, you're very, yeah, that's, and, and the CEO, the head of HR isn't, the good thing about being the CEO of the investment banking is the boss was away all day, right? So yeah, I was, you get to like, rule the he roost. sort of gave me the keys when he left. And so for a while, you know, at first I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm not the boss, he's the boss. But then... People see you as the boss because you're there all day in, day out. And, and then they'd question, you know, if they didn't like my answer, they'd go to my boss and say... Bruce told us to do this, and we don't really want us to do it because it's we think it's stupid. And Michael would, Michael was smart enough to know that if he wanted to make his own life easier, he would back you to the hilt. He'd back me to the hilt. Now maybe he did that because he thought I was really good. Maybe he did that because he doesn't want. To, yeah, he doesn't want to make. If he, if, yeah, exactly. yeah. So whereas the head of HR doesn't go away and is there all day and run, actually runs yeah. HR. So I reported to her. Plus. That was a real operations job. So the head of HR and a lot of banks, the COO of HR and a lot of banks is responsible for all the people management computer systems. So the pay records and the compliance records and the disciplinary records of, you know, 110,000 people. All across your desk. All, and yeah. it's all technical and it's a, a people, it was a PeopleSoft system is what it's called. And it was, it was like a computer job. Right? It yeah. was like a high-tech GT ch- ch- technology job. that w- It wasn't about managing people. It was about managing systems. And I wasn't really that interested in that. And I wasn't very good at it. So that was an example where I you know, took a job that sounded like, as you said, yeah. it sounded, oh, that sounds like it's reasonable. But it, it wasn't. So but then I had the bug. So then I quit Deutsche Bank in 2014 because I thought, I'm this- still interested in this management stuff. I don't see where in the bank I could do it. If I want to have, if I want to start a new career at, you know, over fifty, I should better get going and do it soon. Yeah. So I quit. So yeah, first of all, congratulations. Like that's a, bra- it's a strong decision to make, post fifty. It's a huge, uh, like a commendable, I think, to go. So I suppose for the listeners, you went back and studied behavioral and economic science. Well, the, then but, I did a year. Oh, so you did a year I did of the year of consulting. Yeah. Which was kind of partly successful but tough, and then I came up with. I kind of didn't feel like I was an expert enough to consult around performance management and people and things. You know, it's... there's You want to know the, the current yeah, sort yeah. of... Yeah, and so some consultants go out and say, I, you know, I used to, you know, 
make widgets for 30 years, so I'm going to consult with you and tell you how to make widgets. Uh, whereas maybe the technology... Yeah, yeah, you don't know what you did was right for yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. So I thought better to go back to... And I also just wanted... I mean, the whole behavioral sciences stuff yeah. existed when I first went to school and, you know, to, to business school. And I was just really interested in the whole, psych, you know, the psychology... You know, remember when we did our behavioral economics course, that whole question about what happened to psychology and economics and the Pareto optimal, yeah, it's, the Pareto split, where psychology was taken out of economics. Yeah, back back in the day. And then it's only sort of recently begun to slightly kind of add a little bit of more nuance yeah. to this rational kind of yeah. being. So that, that sort of brings us to where... Um, I wanted to ask you more now about, so after having done this uh, behavioral science uh, masters, you, you know a bit more of the sort of theory around how people work. Looking back at the, uh, I suppose, some of the processes and stuff, do you feel that in, certainly in banking or what you saw, where where is the current kind of practice at as to where it could be at? Well, I, is, think, I think it's still far, far away from, I think... You know, and there's, I'm trying to think of the authors, but, you know, Daniel Pink and uh, Daniel Ariely talk a lot about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And, you know, I think people who work in, people who work in most professional organizations are intrinsically motivated. They want to do well. They want to succeed. They want the team to win. But then compensation's used as a really hard sort of, you know, you've heard the term, uh, you know, we pay for performance, right? That every dollar that somebody earns should be based on his personal contribution and performance. Mm. And that's a pretty hard, first of all, it's very difficult at an investment bank or in any firm where people have to work. To, you know, how do you know on a football team? Yeah, collaboratively, yeah. You know, Messi's the great goal scorer, but you're never, sh you know, maybe it's because there's some other guy at fullback on the team that, you have to really look at, you know, it comes back to Moneyball. You have to look at the team statistics yeah, to difficult. figure out why that guy's scoring or not. It's not just his brilliant play. And also, you know, take a foot. I mean, I love the football player examples again. If, you know, when Messi plays for his country and isn't paid, does he play less harder, harder? And I'd argue he plays probably at least as hard trying to win for his country as he does for his team that's paying him a fortune. Mm. So sometimes what happens is if you pay people for what they want to do, that drives out their intrinsic, mo you know, why they want, they, mm. they wanted to do it because it was a really interesting job, right? You're interviewing me because you're interested in the subject area. And, yeah, and I'm not getting program. paid you're for this. Yeah. Although, do you have a phone number? Do you have a... Is there I, anywhere where listeners can dial in? Can pay me money. There's money? unfortunately no way. If you're feeling <laughs> altruistic, it is going zero places. Um, no, you're right, though. That that's I Actually, that's a cool area. It's not one that I study particularly in depth, but maybe you have. So can you talk a little bit? So as presumably as the operation side of HR, compensation is a big area. Yeah. How much then, if, if you're going to go by these kind of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic i'd imagine in a in a bank you're about as sort of materialistic as you're going to get everybody talks about how much they get paid yeah. their salary and 
you would have been a very you would have been sort of front row seats to to doing any of the studies but seeing the data on does increased pay get increased performance well, and and what the I suppose the, what's the what's the answer? The, I th- I think the answer is no. I mean the the we actually did lots of regressions, not the kind of you know I wasn't as good at regressions three years ago, yeah, ten years ago. Now, now you could have done all of those. <laughs> but we found that uh, high bonuses in one year, if anything, probably less to reduce led to reduced performance in future years. There's also a problem that bonus payments and pay is very sticky. Now, I don't know if this is yeah. lost. I I don't think it's loss aversion. But we could have a, I think it's referenced. Yeah, I think this is absolutely about a reference. Yeah. Once you get used to getting paid, then if you get paid less, even though you're paid a lot, it's it feels like you're, you're losing yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the one I, I noticed when my kids are in school that uh, they'd get sort of, you know, C's and B's in their first term. Then they'd get B's in their second term, and then they'd get A's and B's in their third term. And, you know, why is that? And it's kind of, you could, you, the most obvious answer is, God, they must have really improved their work during those three terms. Or, boy, those teachers are really good because they really pulled up yeah. the knowledge. Or it's just that the teachers know that, you know, if you give A's to students in the first quarter, they're not going to work for as hard in the second and third quarter. Whereas if you give them B's and C's, they are. So yeah, sort clever of motivational progression of of grades or pay is important. So now, the, and the problem with bank. So so even if you're really rational, and we know people aren't always really mm. rational, but even if you're really rational, the best thing to do is get a big pay increase. Because it's always going to be sticky downwards. So p- what some people would do, I think, is they'd work really hard one year, get a bunch of deals, say, look at me, this was a franchise year for me. I brought in $100 million to the bank. Their bonus would go up 50%. The next year, they'd bring in nothing, and their bonus would drop 10%. Is that how the bonus structures work, though? That you, they, they take into account where you're coming from? Rather than well, they they sh- they shouldn't, but they do. I mean, the the best predictor of the bone, and I did these. We had a lot of explanatory value variables like revenue performance and contribution to teamwork, and how many years they'd been in the bank, and and one of them was how much you earned last year. Well, that was shouldn't. It wasn't one of the ones we put into the model to determine what pay was. But it was the best explanatory model afterwards. To <laughs> okay, what okay. Actually turned out to be. So yeah, the the R squared was eighty something percent. Yes. So eighty percent of what your bonus was in any given year could be explained by could him. Be explained by what the bonus was the previous year, and you know, and that's that's a problem because it you know it means you yeah know, yeah absolutely you should- management and. What's the what's the solution if you're now knowing sort of behaviors? Because it sounds like it needs to the whole almost the whole system to be an injection to release sort of the high watermark that's already happened yeah. almost. Well, and, and but as you've just said, because of reference dependency, it's you know, if someone's getting paid two million bucks and you turn around and say, well, we're rebasing everything, and this year you're going to get paid one million, even though. You know, a million is a huge number for everybody who's listening out there. It's, you know, 
They've got it's demoted. They're, they've yeah, just yeah. Been halved, right? Yeah. They've just and and having from two million to one million might feel just as bad as being halved from twenty thousand pounds to ten thousand. And what's the logic behind? So if so, I understand reference dependent to their 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 history is one thing, and if you if you have their pay, they will feel like they're losing out. But if they know that everybody is getting half pay. Well, that's important. so that's the, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. is a huge yeah, other side yeah, of it, yeah. the social reference point. And if so, you can cut everybody the same, absolutely. And no, and did you did you ever have any data to find out if that happens? There's less arguments or less. Yeah. The, oh yeah. I mean, and in bad years like the crisis in two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, people's pay went down, and as long as we kept as long as we kept the ordering the same, it was okay. Also, if the I'm ordering changed, then it had to be explained. Yeah, and and uh, I've, I've, having never worked in a bank and probably will never work in a bank, when you, is this all public? Co- no, okay, not public, but is this common knowledge within the bank? When you say the ordering, is is obviously no, a list isn't going not, up, no. but everybody speaks to each other and says exactly they, how much. Well, plus yeah, plus the the ad is particularly amongst young people. The advent of the internet was a huge so glass door where you can yeah, see how much people correct. are earning in other. So, so you know, one of the things that used to happen for for younger for young associates, we used to pay based on. Basically, I'd go get data from from groups that looked at data in the market, and you know, they'd we'd figure out how much our competitors were paying approximately, and then we'd try to match them in pay, and then we'd bucket people, which is a terrible term, but we'd bucket them as I you know we'd grade them as being a B or C so let's say that you know and then the a person we'd pay the Does market I... rate for an a person in a bonus and the B person would pay the market let's say they were a third year associate yeah. so each year there were different numbers and we had competitor information which interestingly sounds dangerously like price fixing right that you know. does a little bit yeah but I don't know but also you can't how can you get the competitor information for the bonuses because I would imagine the salaries you can kind of find out through word of mouth a little we'd, bit we'd report them to the, the, if you were willing to sign up to these agencies you would tell them what everybody's bonus was you wouldn't give not by name but you just but this this level if this they're doing level, well and then they'd feed back to you what the average was oh so wow it's a so mechanism it's, for price fixing oh wow that's amazing so there's but, external sort of independent organization yeah, yeah. That all they do is act as a sort of bit of a barrier, and they, they you whisper to me, I'll whisper back, and yeah. no one needs. So and then of course what would happen? So then you'd pay somebody. So what would what would happen? And then I'd tell everybody, okay, you can't like you can't say that all of your team are A's because. Yeah, because then not, it's not. Yeah, yeah. B, we don't have enough money. So I'd say, let's say. And I also couldn't say a third were A's and a third were B's and a third were C's because that's... You have to be realistic. Say we're better... No, we so we're better than that. We Our firm has 40% A's and 40% B's and only 20% C's. And then... But then what would happen is so people would grade their people, we'd go through this whole process, and then we'd pay people. And then associates would come to me and they'd say, Bruce, you keep saying that Deutsche Bank pays the market rate... And it's total bullshit. I said, well, what do you mean? And the guy would say, well, I'm an a, I'm a second year A, and I got paid a bonus of, you know, 25,000 pounds. And I looked on 
market watch or whatever yeah. the name is and and I know that the market rate for a second year who gets an A is 30,000 pounds. Now, of course what was happening was this guy's boss was lying to him. He'd actually rated him as a B. B. He had told him he was an A. He's uh, okay. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. He wants he's to kicking the can. on me, not on himself. Uh, so, I see. Yeah, so yeah. But the but the transparency so that even at the higher levels, there was the transparency led to this sort of highest common denominator yeah. pay. And you you don't want to tell anybody. You know, again, what's really motivating people, I think, is how they perce- what perce- how, how they're perceived by their bosses. So, so everybody tells everybody they're doing great, but then doesn't pay them as if has to pay them mm. differentiated because you know you have to pay for performance, and the result is is that. A whole bunch of people get paid a lot of money, and they're really pissed off. Yeah, it it sounds like the happiness discussions, right? Because the diff, what people care about is the differential, not the. So, to jump to a conclusion, I think a lot of these firms would be a lot better off if they just paid everybody the same at high levels. So once you hit a certain. Yeah. So or or make them partnerships and say. Yeah. For every year you stay here, you get more ownership of the firm, which is like law firms. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. And Even most of the all the accountancing yeah. firms, a lot of the strategy consultancing firms are all. So you you, and and then but then you could say well but what's your incentive to perform? Well, your incentive to perform would be to stay in the good graces so that you get to a partner level. Yeah, and and stay in the firm, right? Yeah. Because maybe what you maybe what the firm says is we're going to do. We're going to do a performance review, and we're going to fire the bottom five percent every year. But, but the ninety-five percent who stay are all going to get paid the same. Then you're incentivized to stay in the mm. top ninety-five percent, rather um, than. Talk me through again. So, the, so similar related to compensation, um, I'll be interested to know. Was there? I, I don't know if you classify it as science, but what was the approach? to understanding people in and around the environment of the performance review was it is it sort of the traditional sort of you come in you say how you've done for the year was there any innovative approaches well, to I, we michael and i put science around it where we actually spent a lot of time figuring out how to measure revenues accurately on both uh sort of how much you contributed basis. You know, it was a bit like yeah, money ball. Trying to get more data around yeah, there. Yeah, so we had multiple measures of revenues, multiple measures of contribution to franchise. So we had numbers that we yeah. added up. And, and you know, Kahneman, you know, there, there was something that Kahneman talked about where, you know, you can build all the fancy models you want, but if you take the average of seven or eight parameters, yeah, it's going to get ninety percent of the way there. Yeah. So we did that, but a lot of other divisions didn't do that. Um, sorry, I'm just about to. No, say oh yeah, sorry, so yeah, yeah. Because um, I'm, uh, I'm always kind of interested though that we talked about it. You, you, you were talking earlier about. Um, sorry, uh, you're yeah. So you're down in Warwick. You were giving a talk about sort of behavioral science and finance, and you mentioned earlier how. Obviously, some some people that are in in industry will still manage to find the time to read sort of the cutting academic cutting edge academic research, but my I I'd be interested to know. I'm sure it's different for different sectors of industry, but what is the <coughs> um, from what you've seen anyway? What would be sort of the lag time between some of the sort of best practices and I think it's you know 
It's huge. Really? It, it, decades. Debonard, do you, don't, do you read any Atul Gawande and... Uh, I've, I've recognised the name, I don't he's know. He's a doctor who who has written about check he's the guy who made checklists famous oh I've, i think i've heard about his and he was he he, he started he was, with the the avalanche rescue correct kind of, yeah and he was the brief lecture series yeah so i might have heard that i think i've heard and he he's so, and in surgeries and, and things like yeah. that so you know what's in the airline industry if a plane crashes they investigate it for six to nine months they f- almost always figure out what the problem was and then all manuals for at least that plane maybe all planes the instruction manuals for all planes around the world are updated for that finding mm. because because it's such a highly regulated business and we there's too much risk we to, hate yeah. dying and you know dying in car crashes and for diabetes and things is okay, but dying in plane crashes is a terrible. Yeah, it's thing. unacceptable. Unacceptable. So that 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 the feedback loop is great, but in a lot of you know in the medical industry, it's you know guys continue to do the wrong operations on knees decades after you know years yeah, after the science says to do something else. And I think that certainly in mat, I don't remember anybody really reading management science papers in the HR division at Deutsche Bank. Yeah, it seems it's like it's scary. a bit too uh, idealistic almost, where you'd have this time to sort of, oh, I'll just read the latest cutting it. I, I can imagine these are busy offices. You're not yeah. gonna, you're not gonna have that sort of luxury. Almost. And they, if they do read anything, they read Harvard Business Review, which is bite-sized, interesting, yeah. but it's sort of bite-sized. K, you know, it's a bit like reading Time Magazine or Forbes mm. and. And so you, so you get sort of a feeling for the current thing, but not the kind of papers we, you know. But not the, the not meaty theory of Tversky's how prospect theory kind of papers. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to get Although now. To, I heard earlier today that that's all been debunked, which is making me very depressed. Yeah. Well, that's a that's another <laughs> thing about yeah. I I don't know about uh, I, I don't know where, where what exactly you heard, but there's certainly, the, yeah. There's sort of the. I think it's mixed in. There's a kind of a replication crisis throughout social psychology and parts of behavioral science. But I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it debunks everything, but it seems to be just things are held to more scrutiny now, and a lot yeah. of the previous just need to be replicated. Yeah. Um, I was going to shift gears slightly though and talk about uh, an idea that we've come across, I suppose, in the last year. Um, I, I'll ask you to maybe talk me through it, but it's a. Uh, a concept that Nick Chater has sort of oh, put yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's sort of, it's something that you feel, you it's kind of hits you strongly. Yeah. And uh, so mind is flat. Talk us yeah. through roughly what. Well, I think it's a bit, so the mind is, so how do we explain? Okay, yeah, so, I was going to, yeah. So, that, so the basic explanation, if you, I, the way I, and you tell me, Don, because you're more, at least as much of a, you know, a little knowledge. We, yeah, I think we're both we're both we're both very much in that category. <laughs> I mean, the, the, in in standard sort of traditional economics, assumes that everybody has preferences, mm. and then they maximize their utility or feelings of wealth or whatever, based on the maximizing their their preferences. You know, if you like Coke more than Pepsi, then you drink Coke more than you drink Pepsi, and and you you and those preferences are are stable 
we know what they are. You know, we prefer more money to less. We prefer prefer less risk to more if we're risk averse, and that we're consistent in those kind of preferences. So that's standard economics. And then behavioral economics as well, not so sure that's right. Sometimes we prefer more risk, sometimes we prefer less risk, mm. sometimes we prefer Coke, sometimes we prefer tea, you know, that our preferences sort of jump around a bit. And I think that the mind is flat idea is that we're kind of just like animals in the animal kingdom and we don't really think about any of this stuff. We just make choices and we make in those the choices in the moment based on what we did before. So the context is our previous decision. Mm. It's not some paradigm of how we think the world works. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty, well, pretty close to what I see it in my head as being the argument. I think the slight nuance is that I know there's this kind of, well, it's not, it's not a current post, but this idea of a Bayesian inference is a sort of when you make a decision, you kind of go inside yourself and pick out your preference from a distribution of what it could be. And then I think that it's more tilted towards obviously what you've done before, but there's always these tales of, it could you could do anything. And I think... Um, yeah, it's it, you're, you're obviously the huge higher percentage or proportion, uh, the higher likelihood of doing kind of what you would see as being consistent with what you've always done will just be the, the option that you choose yeah. most. My, and, then, and, then, and then once you've done that... It reinforces it, it I presume. Sure. And, and, and you, make, you can make sense of the world because... You put the story to it, no? Don't yeah, yeah, well, exactly. I think we, we then retrospectively kind of fill in the gaps and then, yeah, confabulate and re reimagine that we are these deeply thoughtful kind yeah. of creatures. So I wanted to bring it up because I think, first of all, I think it's a quite a, for me, it was a completely new concept. And it it's, it's I haven't really seen it anywhere else. Yeah. And it, it seems to be, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my my sort of thought experiment here would be let's say if it is true what are the implications for what you've seen in sort of I suppose finance is, is generally regarded as oh there's they're such important decisions and so many people are making it's the, the, the free market and maybe the stock market it's as close as you can get to kind of perfect competition but also the most rational and then any, in, in any yeah. irrationality basically gets loses out so What's the implication then if people are only these kind of um, instant decision makers? Yeah. On the, it, does that have a practical sort well, of... Well, I, I think there's two... Okay, so let me... I, two, I don't know, but let yeah. me hear, throw th two things out there and you tell me what you think. I mean, one, people, people think that for the stock market to be correctly priced or that to, you know, which really, not correctly priced, but to be in a position where no one can make excess profits, it requires everybody to be rational, that all information is reflected in prices, mm. requires that all people are rational who are playing in the market. This is the standard sort of market hypothesis, market yeah. theory, yeah. But that's not how that, that theory doesn't work. The, the, all the theory requires is that there's a few really smart players with huge access to capital, right? If you think, if. If you have infinite access to capital and you're super rational and know better than everybody else in the world what the right prices are, 
you'll force the prices you'll to move the, right the market prices. exactly you'll move yeah. the market until they're at the right prices it only takes you yeah to fix those it doesn't take everybody to be rational yeah. it just takes a few smart people with lots of money and you'd think that the smarter people would get be able to borrow more money to do it so in that sense I'm not sure it has that much to say about it. But is it, so then I maybe sort of put me, I'm ignorant here then, are most stock markets, that's how they are, I don't know the exact makeup when you say there's a few big players, is there not, there's so many millions of players in the stock market, but obviously some are bigger than others. Well, there, but there's, are, there's, there's hedge funds, right? There's hedge funds who just dominate, are, are huge and who have algorithms and huge access to capital and can move markets. So yeah, there are, I mean, it's not huge. one player, but there's a handful of players mm. who can have huge amounts of capital and can move stocks to. So does that, it sort of, it feels a little bit, um, as a small, if you are sort of an individual investor in a market, does that mean, I'm not sure whether to take solace from the fact that that's a good yeah. Is it is it is it a good side or a bad side if you? I think if you, it depends what you're doing. If you if you're an individual investor and you know the, another shout out to Rob because I'm yeah. big in this area. If you're an individual investor who's going out and trying to pick stocks, who's trying mm. to be smarter than the, the market, uh, yeah, the market, and say this share is underpriced and that share is overpriced, so I'm going to buy this share and sell that share. Then I think it's really dangerous because you. There are smarter people out there who have more capital than you who haven't done what you're doing. So you better be bloody sure that what you're doing is right. You know, why are you so special that you have the knowledge better than that other group? But the solution is simple. Just buy the index. Just buy all the shares in the index. You know, buy And either way, you're just tracking the... Just track what the market is. And it means you'll never beat the market, but you'll never lose out compared to the market either. And I... it also that's a very cost effective way of mm. investing. It you know cost the the fees for market tracking index funds are very low and what happens though when like huge proportion of all money invest, invested is in indexes. So I don't know where it is at now but that's a I mean this is it's sort of a zero sum game. There's got to be someone out there to Yeah, suddenly the when everybody price. yeah. If everybody was investing in the index, who would be determining the price? Exactly. Suddenly there's a you need somebody out there playing a view. Yeah. You know, and yeah. But, you know, that... Is know, it, it's a bit like you're a poker player, right? Isn't it, you know, the old joke at the poker play table is you sit down at the poker table and if you can't find... Who the rube is. You're the you rube. can't figure out who the rube is, it's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the other point being on the flat story is the, the world is mind Mind is flat. flat is all this pundits on the, so you listen, you know, you listen to the news in the evening and somebody comes on and says, well, the stock market drops today, the the US stock market dropped today because inflationary fears in the U, this is a recent one, Mm. inflationary fears in the US seems to have led to people thinking that the Fed would increase interest rates and therefore the value of equity compared to debt would drop and therefore the stock market dropped. Well, that sounds like a totally plausible explanation, but it's one of a fact. Yeah, it's just they could have the next day the stock market goes up and they say, 
their well, next plausible the argument. Market, yeah. Stock market went up because inflation's going up and therefore prices are going up, therefore companies are going to make more profits because the money's going to go up, so therefore the stock market went up. So you've got the same explanation for two different directions, and it all sounds plausible because yeah, it's, the, it's the Steve Jobs thing you were talking about at the beginning. You can it's make the, sense of it when you look you're, at yeah. it after the fact and you make a story. Yeah. You know, and that's where, and that's where you and I got into a little bit of trouble when we were arguing some of this stuff in class. Yeah. You know, what's the perfect mind is flat solution is of looking at the world around you and connecting all the dots and making a story out of it. And I think it's called religion. Yeah, well, this is this is again, yeah, very. It's 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 pretty topical though at the moment as well, where it's um. When when you look at I know other things we're talking about with neuroscience, when you get into it, when, uh, I suppose we 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 touched a little bit about um, when neuroscience would have trying to get more and more understanding of the brain and try and understand well where do we have these sort of deep deep seated kind of uh, preferences and looking at the the neurological basis for any of these certainly on the economic side where do we where do we have value where do we have preference where do we have all these kind of things and a lot of this from what we've seen it seems to be similar in the same way sort of there's obviously specific neurological places the the prefrontal cortex i know it came up a lot for specific like a, a reward center but i think on a more broad scale when it comes to stuff like um overall preference and i could be going way off here and it seems to be a bit like uh stuff like consciousness and free will come in a little bit it's sort of like they they kind of lead you to the bigger questions when you start going into this mind is flat when you when you take away this assumption that were these kind of deeply thoughtful or kind of um put together people with this this wealth of kind of, yeah, preference or I, I don't. Yeah. There's always the word that it's not quite preference, but it's more of a. Uh, it, there was I can't, I can't remember exactly what the word was, um, but it it suits. I, I just don't know if preference is exactly what I'm trying to say with it. Yeah. Um, but it seems to get into an area where it sort of takes away if we are just an accumulation of what we've done in the past and the context that we're in. It almost gets to the point where any. We're not really making these decisions at all, well, and there's no say, free will almost. There's no you like you and I have talked about this before. Yeah, I, I was trying. I, I think you can end up in either side, though. You could also say, I think that I that just think that is that not the ultimate conclusion almost of. But can't you conclude it the other way? Can't you say, oh, I thought all my decisions were based on, you know, deeply held religious beliefs and plans and values that my family and their my forefathers and my nation and my people and these are all the influencers that yeah. had f forever then you're kind of stuck in that uh, how can i ch you know how can i change my decision whereas if if the mind is flat then we actually have free will because we're freed from our previous yeah you're decisions. yeah like breaking out of the matrix almost you've kind of once yeah. you've the you, once you've taken the uh, sort of the goggles off and you've seen the world for it really is and you can make any decision you want yeah so I don't know, but I... I but it, even, does that not then, is that not almost circular? Because that <laughs> context has been already planned for almost. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I agree. Yeah, you're still in a context. You're, you're still in the still, context you're of... You're still in the matrix and somebody's 
just shown or just yeah. made you think Making that you, the temperature what it should be yeah. and feeding you the right smells and tastes so that you make the decision that you're predetermined to make based on that context here's a question do you ever think we'll ever get to a stage where we we understand enough or completely all those inputs all those inputs yeah. that create the context for you well, like we're getting better seemingly we, we're, we're we, getting better at knowing what inputs and influences can move us in certain directions Except that you, you've just said earlier tonight that, you know, the, what's the right word? All the research, you know, the research is all crap and has been debunked because it's not. Uh, see, yeah, not okay. I, I want to wind back a little bit from the debunked. <laughs> I think my point, sorry, we were talking earlier, my point was a little bit that in certain of the sort of the bigger, well-cited social science and behavioral science papers, that they had amazing theory. So there's um, Tversky's elimination by aspects, the cumulative prospect theory, mental account, all these big papers that have huge influence, loss aversion. These are sort of seminal theories or seminal um, ideas that have shaped behavioral science. The original papers often would have these amazing theories yeah. and, and sort of, and as, as, as you can say, they're, they're, almost to a point where they're a little bit self-evident and they say, oh, that just is intuitive. But the actual um, statistical basis on which they rely for their yeah. their paper that they wrote in 1982 or whatever it was is of a really small sample and it's really, it's not... It's, it's just not, bad science. It's just bad, um, yeah, bad practice of the scientific method where you... I know one of the ones that I was shown was actually, it was, it, it, I think the sample size was Eight. I think it is this Tversky elimination. My sample size was eight. They were all undergrad students, and it was an hour. They had to do these tests for an hour every week over six weeks. And then it was just, it, I think it mentioned in the paper that they had to do it as part of a punishment. So it was like a detention yeah. exercise only in the Jewish uni or the, the Hebrew university. So it was just such a small represent. Yeah. It wasn't really representative of anything. Yeah. And then to, to sort of use that as a foundational sort of yeah, yeah. study. And so it, it, I think there's an issue, obviously, you can't throw the theory or the, the idea out just because, th but I, I certainly think you can't go the other way and say, yeah. well, this is true. true. Yeah. There's also been a problem with just the repl replicability of social sciences. Yeah. Oh, there's this scandal. I can't remember the lady who's the. She was the queen of the power pose. I think she got known as. Oh, that's but you right. remember yeah, the, yeah, the you you go in front of the heart, mirror, yeah. put your hands on your hips, spread your legs wide, look at your eyes, and then you will nail that job interview. And you will. Said, yeah, because orangutans do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and people who win gold medals at the Olympics, the the, the, the silver medalist always looks. Dead. Yeah, there's there's the a lot of shaky. Always, yeah. yeah. Um, I fell for that stuff. I thought she was great. <laughs> yeah. I actually saw her speak. The power of a good TED talk, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, no, I was thinking more that the there's so many different contexts, right? Your question was, yeah, did we ever figure out, you know, so you you replicate an experiment that was done ten years ago, and then you discover that they held they, they there was a hundred parameters and they held them all constant. But the air pressure on that day, it turned out, was different than the air pressure today. And therefore, a different set of decisions are made. So how could... There's too many... Yeah. Isn't there too many parameters and too many... 
there's yeah, too much I think diversity out there's there. All, yeah, and also the, forgetting about all the, like, uh, you could almost c- control for all the contextual parameters of the experiments, like the, uh, but you can't control for the previous life experience of all the people going into well, it. Well, and, and even, right, so, and then you could say, well, we'll take the exact same number of people and test them again a week later. But they're different people, they're different yeah. different people. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, so, it's a, I think. So I think it's, I think in a way that's promising, right? That's saying that there is going to be change in yeah, it is exciting, and I think though it's tied that ties more closely in with the neuroscience side of the um, that behavior science, where we actually begin to piece together parts of the brain that do certain things, um, and obviously it's paired with the experimental side of it of the behavior and yeah. what what it matches. But my, I think I'd be, I think where's there's going to be more. Um, fruitful discovery I would say in the next five ten years will be around the neuroscience but also then the um, the implications of the neuroscience so once you know portions of the brain that do things and, and I think a lot of that mapping has kind of been not not fully done but but it's the interconnected sort of networking yeah part um, and I think the 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 crossover between that and computer science seems to be an outrageously productive and yeah. sort of oh, I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's so that's gonna, you know, to get back to what we were talking about, that's gonna take some of the bullshit out of finance, right? Yeah. This this idea that you can go and spin a story so that yeah yeah you want. Now that, people are gonna be able to say Well I'll you know, consult the algorithm and you're you're wrong and Yeah. So that takes me to, we'll, we'll finish up because I know we, we've, we've run on a little longer than I expected, that uh, around, um, linked to behavioral science a little bit, well, almost, is the idea around if, if, if we get to a stage where we can understand behavior enough and we can begin to, as I suppose you did in a small way with the, you said the convertible bonds algorithm. Yeah. You can, it, it, I suppose, ultimately you can automate a lot of the decisions that happen in banks so that they yeah. become less human oriented with all their heuristics and mistakes what then as a very final broad picture the future of banking the future of the finance financial sector is it uh, like the the trajectory seems to be way down that road and let's yeah, get algorithmic and where's the room for for nuance social science behavioral mm, Humanity, I suppose. I'm silent because I'm. I think it's such a good question. I'm thinking about, you know. The the first res- my sort of automatic response is it's dismal and you're right. Every finance job will be automated. The interesting thing is is that and I don't know who I think we've discussed this before, but you know like. Everybody gets worried that the high street is going to fall apart because the garage is yeah. going under and the fo- f- the bookstore goes under because Amazon's taken it over and you mm-hmm. know all the sort of service companies on the high street disappear and therefore there's going to be no jobs on the high street. But then what shows up on the high street? Well, betting shops usually. Yeah, sickeningly, sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Well, betting is betting and fast betting food takeaways. Well, seem can, to be. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But also coffee shops, and yeah, yeah, social places for people to work and meet, and you know there are. That's very right, true. It's yeah. not all just, but there, you know, hair salons. I don't know if that at nail painting places. It is but amazing it, though to walk down your high street nowadays, and just to see the. I I know certainly where I'm in Leamington, 
there between where I used to live and the bus stop, there were 11 different ha- hairdresser of some variety. And it's only people like us that would actually count that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. yeah but, but I think it's yeah, yeah. you're right, there's just a, a shift. Yeah. The question is, I suppose, with population ballooning and automation... Well, so, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but sort of... Fu- I mean, one of the reasons fi- there's still a lot of finance jobs is because, you know, until a couple of years ago, half the people in the world had no ability to do finance beyond, you know, they brought bricks to the pyramids and were given bags of grain in response. There was no bank accounts. Yeah, or, or credit. Now, or... now people have mobile phones, which opens up credit and opens up. So... You know, yeah, there will be a there, global ballooning of. There's a ballooning of the people who can use. You know, mm. I saw a program the other night that you know, 123 million Chinese people travel on trains for the Chinese New Year sort of holidays. You know, wow, that 123 those, million. Yeah, now wow. you know those 120. They either the trains didn't exist or they couldn't afford to do that 20 years mm. ago. So the you know, that, and maybe that's true in finance too. Is those hundred twenty-three million people, plus a lot more, have access to finance and need banking products, need insurance products, need to, yeah. you know, our friend Matt's doing some work in South Africa, insurance, and insurance stuff like that. for yeah, South yeah. African homes to be burnt down in, yeah. in very, you know, in the townships. So, yeah. that's that's a financial product that wasn't didn't exist or there didn't seem to be any demand for it yeah. 20 years ago. My worry with this is, though, I, I, I think you're right and there will be a huge uh, improvement of financial inclusion, but it's my worry is that it, it all gets condensed or it all gets controlled by very what used to be wow. a distributed, every local town had its own bank. Now there's going to be a global bank. Amazon yeah, and yeah. And its services are going to be so much better than the local bank that there's no... Why would you have a local bank? Because it can't compete and it can't do certain things. Yeah. So yeah, it's it. I suppose the uh, this is way off topic, but now we're I suppose yeah we're we're getting into globalization equals more inequalities almost by definition. Um, but yeah, I think on this sort of very broad stroke topic, <laughs> we should wrap it up. But thank you again, well, very John, very much, Bruce. You, so um, sorry, it's taken so long to come back. No, 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 absolutely. It's it's good to have you in any time. Um, the other thing, while we finish, I is there a um, if people want to find out more about? I know you're doing interesting things with Chicago. You're in Chicago. Yeah. Yes, the I. So if people want to find out about more about it, what should they do or? Uh, probably just email me or something. I <laughs> sorry, I don't have a. One of these days, I'll get know, one of get those big on social media. Get one of those thi- those website, Twitter fo- of those social media things. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thank you again, Bruce, uh, for coming in, Mr. Bruce Regal. This has been Donald Connolly on Behave Yourself. Um, we didn't have any music today. We will finish off with a little bit of a jingle. Um, we had no, yeah, we had no music. I'm afraid. Um, it was you were just too interesting. <laughs> um, but do follow us on Twitter or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them. That's Facebook. And, well, not sorry, iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Podcast Addict. There's lots of podcast apps. So wherever you get your podcasts, do subscribe. But this has been Behave Yourself. <laughs>